Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Mark and Nacido podcast. My name is Mark and Nacido, and today's podcast is going to be an interview I conducted a few weeks ago with rock legend Al Cooper. Not Alex Cooper, Al Cooper. Huge difference in those two minutes. Huge, huge difference. I was, it was an honor to interview Mr. Al Cooper. Uh, he had a phenomenal track record when it comes to his musical career. Phenomenal. I mean, it, you know, so where do you start when describing his career? So, that's, so this is part of my music series I'm working on, the history of music in 1961 to 1972. So he started his career in 1958 at the age of 14. Uh, 1964, he co-wrote the hit song, This Diamond Ring by Gary Lewis and, and the Playboys. Uh, 1965, he played the Bob Dylan. In fact, he played the organ on Like a Rolling Stone. Uh, he was in a band called Blues Project from 1965 to 1967. Uh, played Monterey as a solo artist in 1967. He formed Blood, Sweat, and Tears in 1967 and released their first album in 1968. And left after their first album. Uh, went on to join Mike Bloomfield and Stephen Sales for an album called Super Sessions in 1968. As well, in this time, he was a and r man on Columbia Records. Uh, recorded a live album from 1969 called The Live Adventures of Mike Bloomfield and Al Cooper. Uh, had a solo career. Went on to produce for Leonard Skinner the first three albums with hits such as uh, Simple Man, Give Me Three Steps, Free Bird, Sweet Home Alabama, you know, hits like that. That's songs that he produced for Leonard Skinner. Uh, he played with George Harrison, the Ringo Starr, he played with Jimi Hendrix, even with The Who and the Rolling Stones. In fact, he was the, he played the keyboards and the French horn. And the Rolling Stones hit, You Can't Always Get What You Want. Uh, just a phenomenal career in music. Phenomenal career. It was a, it was a great interview. It uh, it was a phone interview. So I had posted this prior. I posted it um, as an audio file. And I didn't really hear it. And I should have heard it before I posted it because... At the end, the audio kind of goes bad. I don't know what happened with it. I can't explain it, and I can't fix it, unfortunately. And I apologize for that. Um, so he posted it again, kind of like as it was. like not. I wasn't doing the intro like this right here. I was just doing like, here's the actual interview. That's it. I know I didn't put it on my Facebook page or nothing, but I just put it on my platform I used to record my podcast called Anchor, which then got put on my, uh, on my other apps that I... Podcast falls on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, etc. Uh, so I, I was talking to my wife's uncle. Uh, he kind of found, you know, I, I told him I told him I was a little bit frustrated by the whole thing. I don't know how it happened. I don't know what happened. You know, and the, the initial phone conversation was great. I would have obviously noticed it right away and says, hey, there's a problem in the audio. Can you call me back or something like that? And, you know, I don't know what happened with the audio. I'm perplexed by it. So 
Here's the actual interview again with the audio, of course, and me, I'm going mad, and I do apologize for that. Uh, but overall, it's a great interview, a great guy to talk to, very humble person. Uh, here is Mr. Al Cooper. I'm Mark Inesito here. I am on the phone with the music legend who had a tremendous career in music. He played with artists such as Stephen Stills and Mike Bloomfield. He was a founding member of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. He went on to produce for Leonard Skinner as well. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Mr. Al Cooper. Hello there. Hello. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. I appreciate it. Taking your time for this interview. No problem. Okay. So first off, I want to ask, um, when did your love of music first come about? Um, I think pretty instantaneously. Um, the first time it really got me was when I was six. My parents went to visit their friends and brought me along, and they had a piano. And it was the first time I was ever able to... Um, sit down at a piano and so that they wisely left me alone with the piano and by the time they were done I had figured out how to play the number one song at the time which was the Tennessee Waltz oh nice on the black on the black keys mind you nice that's amazing So then, you know, everything happened after that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, What inspired you to become a musician professionally? Professionally, well, there were a, a bunch of us in my neighborhood when I was about, uh, 12 or 13 that played instruments. So we used to uh, like put a band together and try and play and see if we could get jobs playing in the neighborhood. And we did do that. And so we played um, a lot of churches and schools and places like that. And uh, we were called the Aristocats. And uh, somewhere in the house, I still have a, a big sign that we had that uh, the bass player's uh, father, who was an arts guy, made for us. And um, everything sort of moved from there. Also in my neighborhood, uh, in another band was um, Harvey Brooks. He lived about a block away from me. So eventually we got together and um, we both ended up playing on uh, Highway 61 Revisited. Oh, cool, very cool. Uh, what was your experience like playing with the Royal Teams? Oh, it was great. It was really great because, um, you know, I had nothing like that before. 
the aristocrats, like I said, just played temples and churches pretty much. Mm-hmm. And here I was playing on rock and roll shows with um, other big acts. So I, I got to meet all these people. It was great. And, um, and the guys in the band were very nice. And it was great. And um, that band uh, gave birth to uh, the main guy was uh, a keyboard player named Bob Gordio. And he went on to form the Four Seasons and write all their songs. Mm-hmm. And um, later on, like um, maybe 15 years ago, he hired me to play on a session. I can't remember who it was, but it was a famous person. And uh, it was it was you know great to see him again and. The session was not difficult for me, so I enjoyed it. And it, you know, but mainly it was great to see him again. Yes. And, and um, also, <clears throat> another guy who was the um, not the original bass player in the Four Seasons, but replaced the original bass player, uh, and then th- that guy became. Uh, a really great arranger and left the four seasons to because he gets getting all this arrangement work and he probably did the arrangements for the uh four seasons when he was in the band and his name is uh, uh charlie colello and uh he worked on uh most of my solo albums once i got the nerve up to uh Introduce myself to him when I met him. I hear you there. <laughs> um, okay. Around 1962, your confidence grew as a musician. You played some guitar parts on records around this time. Um, what was that like for you? Which record are you referring to? Um, well, I, 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 I took this from your, from your uh, uh, bio page, um, Ashley, and I don't, I didn't remember having any. any on records on there or not, but it it, um, it is said that your confidence grew, and I kind of wanted to ask him on that period, and like like how you were as a musician, how you felt playing on these records. On, um, I guess I didn't really say what records I don't think they were. So, well, I mean, uh, once once I was in the Royal Teens, then I um, I played some stuff in the. Uh, in the studios in the the building their manager was in mm-hmm. and uh i also got uh two separate jobs over a period of years uh as a songwriter so uh the building was a uh, uh, 1650 broadway in manhattan or New York City, as it's commonly called. Uh, and I would go there and hang out. And that's how I got the, uh, to be in the Royal Teens. And then I um, 
studied engineering, uh, that you know, uh, studio engineering, mm-hmm. uh, and learned how to do that, which was a big help to me. And then I got signed to uh, a publishing company, music publishing company, as a songwriter. And um, they put me with two other guys that wrote um, lyrics together. So I was the musician and they were the lyric writers. And I worked with them for probably five or six years uh, at two different publishers. We worked at the one publisher that put us together and then uh, we left there and went to the guy who signed me originally, whose name was Aaron Schroeder. And um, he also managed uh, Gene Pitney. So uh, in the course of my writing career, I probably wrote about four songs that he recorded, one which was a big hit. Uh, called I Must Be Seeing Things. But this would definitely be before your time. <laughs> yeah, I was born in 77, so... <laughs> I, love, I love the old rock and roll. I'm not going to lie. I love it all. I love I love music in general. It's, my, it's a passion I have. But yeah. but Gene Pitney was huge. So it was a, it was a great thing. Plus, uh, I, I was signed there before he was... And uh, I went up to his office. I was in New York on a Saturday, and I was in the building, and I went to see if anybody was in the office. And he was there just by himself, the boss. And um, he said, why don't you stay? Somebody's coming in to audition for me, and I'd like to know what you think when he leaves. And it was Gene Pitney. And so I saw him audition for the first time. And of course, uh, Schroeder signed him and, and had a, you know, he had a gigantic career. And we were always friends from that first day. And so he recorded um, quite a few of my songs, which was a great thing. That's, that's good, yes. Um, I guess the three of you, uh, Bob Brass and Erwin Ir- Levine, and yourself yeah. wrote um, the chart topping smash this diamond ring by Gary Lewis and the Playboys. It was um, what was the inspiration behind that song? Uh, well, it's just one of the songs we wrote. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, we, you know, we went in the room, the three of us, uh, with uh, fake white cork bricks on the wall and a, 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 a small piano and, uh, and a, a writing desk. And we went there. That was our job. We went there five days a week from like 12 to 6 and we wrote songs every day. And uh, this time in Ring originally was conceived as a black song and uh and we sent it to uh 
black people, and a couple of them recorded it, and then uh, we played it for the guy who was uh, going to produce uh, uh, Gary Lewis, uh, who, you know, nobody ever heard of other than he was Jerry Lewis's son. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and I remember going up to the office uh, when we got a copy of the record and they, they played it for us and we all hated it. We didn't like it and then it became number one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then we liked it. That's a good thing, yeah. That's definitely a good thing. Um, fast forward a bit here. How how did the Blues Project form? The Blues Project. Let's see. This was a Greenwich Village thing, and it was around um, probably nineteen sixty four or five and uh, I met Danny Kalb and he was um, putting a band together and he wanted to know if I was interested and I said yes and uh, and so we used to rehearse at uh, people's houses and uh, and then we got a couple of jobs playing and then we sort of became based at uh, Cafe Ergogo in the Greenwich Village. We were like almost like the house band there. We played there all the time. Mm-hmm. And at the same time at another club was uh, the Eleven Spoonful and and so it was like that the, the uh you'd find a place and if they liked you they would play you a lot and so they liked us at the cafe of gogo and we started to get a, a big following and of course so did the spoonful but the spoonful got a hit record before us so they they really took off Took us a while because we didn't we didn't ever have a hit single. Mm-hmm. We just uh, people liked our albums and they would come see us play. Nice. nice. Um, at Monterey Pop, you performed as a solo artist. Um, what were your thoughts and experiences at Monterey? Well, I got a job as. Uh, I, I knew the guy who was uh, hired to uh, do the stage and, you know, uh, design the stage and in charge of the sound and everything. And uh, and he hired me as uh, assistant stage manager. Uh, and so... I was very involved in it, like way before we actually went to Monterey. 
probably worked for two months uh, in Los Angeles, where I lived at the time. And then we went off to Monterey, like maybe two days before the festival started, and we set up the stage. And uh, there's a uh, <laughs> it's a great picture of uh, at soundcheck of, of me watching Jimi Hendrix. One of my favorite pictures. Um, how did Blood, Sweat, and Tears form? Blood, Sweat, and Tears was, uh, I, I started it because I wanted to add horns to the Blues Project, and the leader of the Blues Project, Danny Kalb, didn't want to add horns. So I left, and I went to put together a band with horns. And that's how it happened. Nice. It was out of New York. Okay. That's nice, nice. And, and, I, and um, uh, one of the guys from the Blues Project went, uh, went with me. And um, Steve Katz, the guitar player, so both of us were in the Blues Project, and then we were in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And he stayed after I left. Yeah, I was going to um, ask you about that. Um, uh, I read I, I read from a prior source that you left because of musical differences. What was the um, I guess what was the sound you were trying to achieve? Like that wanting to say that okay, this is not what I'm looking for. I need to move on. What were you trying to look for as far as your sound goes? Like more well, they they didn't like um, that the album wasn't uh, more successful, so they blamed that on me, and um, they kicked me out of the band. Wow! And that was okay with me because I didn't want to be someplace where I wasn't liked. Of course, yeah, definitely. So uh, I I left, and then damn it, they got really big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, but um, I didn't care for you know what they became. I would never have done that. And and over the years, uh, there's a lot of people that like that first album. That's a great album. So, uh, and then I think they became way too commercial. And so the people that liked uh, Childless Father to the Man uh, didn't like them after that. Most most of, you know, the, the fans that I met. But a whole other bunch of people really liked them and they, and they made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But it was good for me because uh, I think after that I started working at the uh, record company, and that was uh, uh, much better than all the other stuff I had done. Right. Yeah. Um, in 1968, yeah, I was reading you were an A&R person at Columbia Records, 
in Uganda. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I was talking about. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you, you got together with Mike Bloomfield and Stephen Stills. How did the idea for the Super Session album come about, along with the follow-up live album, the live adventures of Mike Bloomfield and Al Cooper? Well, um, the, I was working at the record company, and I had no one to produce. And and I thought it was too early for me to do a solo album. So um, I had become really good friends with Mike Bloomfield because he was, uh, when I was in the Blues Project, he was in the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Mm -hmm. And then when I formed Blood, Sweat, and Tears, he formed, uh, what was the name of that band? The Electric Flag. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so our careers were very parallel, and and we really got along well as people. So <clears throat> I noticed that he had left uh, the band that he started, and I called him and asked him if he wanted to do a jam session record with me. And I said, it'd probably take two days and we don't really need any preparation. And you pick the, uh, one of the, pick the drummer or the bass player, whichever you want, and I'll pick the one that you don't pick. And it'll just be, uh, four of us. And he said, well, I want to use, um, uh, Barry Goldberg, who was uh, another keyboard player. And I said, that's fine. I said, if he plays piano, I'll play organ. And if he plays organ, I'll play piano. I said, I don't have a problem with that if it makes you more comfortable. And he said, yeah, I would be because we grew up together. I said, okay. And, but uh, I had to do it in Los Angeles. So, I went to Los Angeles and um, we worked for one night and then Bloomfield called me about seven o'clock in the morning and said, um, I can't do this. I, I got to go home. I said, okay. And then I called every guitar player I knew in Los Angeles and I barely knew Steve Stills, but I had his phone number, and he's he said yes. So we went on. We had one night's work done, which probably was enough for one side of an album. And so I just had to change my direction a little bit from blues to uh, stuff that was maybe more commercial. And uh, and Steve Stills was ten times better than I thought he would be, and and it was great. And um, I still love listening to uh, Season of the Witch because he plays so great. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Hello. Hello. Oh, I just want to make sure you're still there. <laughs> Sorry. 
Yeah, I heard you all there. Yeah, um, sorry. Um, so in, in 1972, you moved to Atlanta, and that was when you discovered a band called Leonard Skinner. You had formed a record label called Sounds of the South. What intrigued you about Leonard Skinner to want to sign them? Well, the first thing is, um, I had uh, my own band that was a, a small band. It was just um, uh, guitar, bass, drums, and myself. And uh, and there were guys I, I knew from around town in uh, New York. And... And I got them a deal, uh, the, the two of them, the guitar player and the bass player. And I got them a deal with um, Warner Brothers Records. And I wanted to try working at the studio I had found in Atlanta that I really liked. And so we did their album at uh, that studio. And so uh, we were there for about three weeks and we recorded their album there. And then uh, when we uh, were trying to figure out what to call the album, I, I said, Let's call it the Sweetheart Sampler because uh, their names were Frankie and Johnny. Are, are you familiar with that song? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. I heard it before. So, uh, and also there was, you know, this huge uh, uh, company called Whitman's, and they invented this um, candy box called the Sweetheart Sampler that had all different kinds of candy in it and it was very successful and the and the cover was uh, the cover of the box was always the same. So we decided to call their band um, Frankie and Johnny and call the album the Sweetheart Sampler. And we uh, we finished it, and I mixed it, and we put it out on Warner Brothers with like the cover of the candy box, the sweetheart sampler. And in two or three weeks, we got sued, and they had to pull the album <laughs> off the market. Mm. But. The studio was great, and I said, man, I'd like to just work at this place all the time. And while we were doing the album, uh, we would go, uh, we would work during the day and go out at night to clubs. And we found this one club, I can't remember the name of it anymore. And... Uh, and we go there every night, and they they have bands, and uh, and the guy who owned the club was a guy I knew from earlier in my life, and uh, 
So he he gave me like a tremendous advantage to going there. Like I never had to pay to get in. I had like a private place to sit with room for six people, and uh, and they never they never charged me for anything. Mm-hmm. And so I went there every night, and they had a a, a band. They would hire a band, and they the band would play six nights in a row, and then you know Mondays would be off, and the club was closed on Mondays. But every other night, uh, that's where I would be, and some of the bands were good, but not great, and uh, and also you know I was. Um, socializing and uh, and getting to know more people in town. And then the, maybe the fourth week, Leinard Skynerd came in. And uh, that's what I thought. I thought that's how you pronounce their name. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I heard them play two sets a night for a week and by the third night I wanted to sign them I thought they were great and I loved their material and so their manager was with them and I offered them a deal and within a month I I signed them and I had also signed a local band from Atlanta called Mose Jones and I was working on their album and and when I finished their album I started working on the first Leonard Skinner album nice um yeah you produce hits such as Tuesday's Gone Give Me Three Steps Simple Man Freebird and Three Home Alabama Uh, what were your thoughts when you first heard Freebird Say that again. Um, like he produced hits such as Two Days Gone," "Sweet Home Alabama," "Freebird," "Give Me Three Steps," and "Simple Man." What were your thoughts when you first heard "Freebird"? When you first played the "Freebird"? Well, I mean, I heard it uh, twice uh, uh, twice a night for six days. All the stuff that's on the first album is what they were playing. Okay. And I thought it was fantastic. And so they were the uh, first band I signed to my label, which was called Sounds of the South. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then I signed that other band, Mose Jones. Mm-hmm. That was a local band in Atlanta. Nice. Um, now I'm going to go back, jump back here for a minute. I said the question. That was, I apologize for that here. So um, going back in 1969, um, you started recording as a solo artist and uh, you were on records such as the Rolling Stones, You Can't Get What You Want, playing the keyboards and the French horn in that re- on that record. Um, in that period, what was it like for you around that time, playing with the Stones? And, as a, as well, a I was working, uh, I, I was about to start working at uh, Columbia Records in New York as a staff producer. Mm-hmm. 
I got that job, and uh, and I had moved to New York, and and so this was like, um, of course, I had lived in New York before, so it was like coming home, and I found a nice place to live, and uh, it just was. It was great. It was the job I always wanted to have. And, uh, the other people that worked there were really nice. And, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I knew a guy there very well, uh, which is how I ended up playing on, uh, uh, Bob Dylan's album. Cause he was the producer. His name was Tom Wilson. And uh, he also produced uh, the Blues Project, and and we were very close. And um, so he was there, and then he left. But I also knew uh, John Hammond Sr., who was John Hammond Jr.'s father. And I knew John Hammond Jr. very well because we played on a lot of, uh, at a lot of clubs together. And, uh, and so, and also his, his office was right next door to mine, John Hammond Sr. So we became good friends. And, and that was great. And, uh, but I had to, uh, I had to find something to do. So uh, when I was in London working with the, the Rolling Stones, uh, I got there like four days early and I went shopping for uh, clothes and albums. And it was, you know, a great time to do that in history. Mm-hmm. So I, I bought about 40 albums wow. <laughs> and, and I bought a lot of clothes because they didn't have clothing stores like that in America yet. And I just had a great time. Uh, playing on their record was very comfortable. And uh, that was that. It was, it was, uh, I forgot what your question was. Oh, um, that was pretty much it. I was also going to ask you about your solo career and that same, I guess, question. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't. I didn't think too much about my solo career at that time. I was looking for someone to produce, and I ended up taking one of the albums I bought from uh, my trip to England and I made an appointment with my boss who was Clive Davis. Uh, He was the president of Columbia Records and he also hired me. And so the first meeting I had with him after I was hired, uh, one of the albums I bought was by the zombies and uh 
they had had a couple of hit singles, and then they sort of went away for a few years, and I hadn't heard them. So when I saw they had a new album, I bought that when I was in England. And and I listened to it, and I thought it was great. And so I brought it in to Clive Davis and said, we should buy this album if it hasn't been bought for America yet. And uh, and I uh, uh, gave him my copy, and I, I said, you know, I got to have this back because it's my only copy. But uh, I think we should sign them, and I think we should put this album out in America if it's not already spoken for. And uh, and he listened to it, and he he wasn't as excited as I was, and so. He said, well, I'll do it, but I'm putting it on a subsidiary label of Columbia. I said, I don't care as long as you put it out and people can hear this. And you promote it a little bit. Because there hasn't been a Zombies album in a long time. And uh, he put it out, but he put it (laughs) out on some teeny label that's distributed by Columbia. And the record made it on its own attributes. Disc jockeys loved it. And so all the disc jockeys played it, and it became a hit. And with a hit single. And they sold, like, you know, uh, uh, three-quarters of a million albums. And, uh, And they came to... New York to get their gold record and they came up to my office to thank me because they they knew how it happened and it was the first time that I met them and they were really nice guys and uh, and it began a friendship that you know still exists today and uh and they're terrific guys, and and the keyboard player is fantastic. So it was a it was a great thing. Yeah. But I haven't seen them in a in a while. That's cool. That's cool. Um, in nineteen seventy seven, you published your book called "Backstage Passes: Rock and Roll Life in the Sixties. What inspired you to tell your story? Well, no, it was. It's called Backstage Passes and Backstabbing Bastards. Oh, okay. I must have done wrong. As a matter of fact. And it was an autobiography. So it wasn't just about the 60s. Okay. It was my whole life. And uh, I, I worked hard on it. The first printing... Uh, was not so great. So I went and I I rewrote it. And from the second printing on is the book that you can still get today. And it keeps on selling. I think um, my website um, started uh, uh, like a 
re-up on it. So, uh, I, I, I never get any notice from the book company like, you know, your deal's up or anything. And I get uh, fan mail on the website from people who love the book. So I think it's going to be okay. Yeah, definitely. That's cool. Um, You moved to England in 1979 and began to produce for artists out there. What were some of the highlights? I'm sorry. Start again. I I, I can't. I can hardly hear you. Oh, okay, I apologize. There. Um, you moved to England in 1979 and began to produce for artists out there. What were some of the highlights you had while in England? From that time? Oh well, there were so many because I I had only been there two times and. Uh, I don't even I don't even remember why I moved here now. But of course I'm seventy seven now. Yeah. But I moved there. And one of the first things that happened was uh George Harrison asked me to play on his solo album. And so who could turn that down? Oh, definitely. So I went, and uh, and he had a studio at his house, which was about an hour and a half outside of London. And I knew one of the other guys on the session, and so uh, he would he would drive me and uh, take me home because he lived near me, and so. Uh, it was great. Um, uh, George was fantastic. A really great guy, good sense of humor, and uh, and we got along great. And, uh, and we remained friends for uh, quite a while after that. It was uh, uh, one of my favorite things that I did when I was in England was um, playing on his album. That's cool. Um, do you consider yourself a, a go-getter and a perfectionist when it comes to your music? I'm not a perfectionist, but I am a go-getter. I mean, if I if I like something, I I go to the the full extent of whatever I can do to make it happen. I definitely do that. It's definitely different. Definitely different. And I've and I've I've met so many people that that it's a a great thing. It's just I I know a lot of people, and uh, you know ninety nine percent of them are really nice, and so there I go. I mean I've I've worked at a couple of record companies, I've been staff producer at a couple of labels, 
I worked with uh, um, Ringo was on the George Harrison sessions. So I was playing with half the Beatles. How bad could that be? That's awesome, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, stuff like that. And then uh, having played on the, uh, the Stones record, it was all good. And um, I'd say uh, it was half luck and and half that uh, people like the way I played. And I, and I wasn't um, stuck up or anything like that. I just loved the music. Still do. I don't know what 
Well, I mean, I'm, I'm still interested. And I, and I still have, uh, you know, quite a few friends that are that are uh, younger than me that are that are still in the music business. So, you know, I'm in touch with them. And what I decided to do was uh, uh, put out a, a box set of four CDs of um, all the good stuff I have in the house that was uh, never released. So that's what I've been working on for the past year, is putting that box set together. And, uh, and that would be, you know, the, the last thing I want to put out. If hopefully <laughs> I can get it done before I die. Well, you're, you're sure than I am. And, and just, just remember this. And, um, and when you're 77, think about it. Oh, well, yeah, um, before I, I, I married my wife now, that's my first three marriages I regret, except for I did have a son in my first marriage who's about 54 now, and, uh, and I love him very much, and I, I see him as much as I can. He's in California. And so uh, I can only see him when he comes here. And uh, I, I can't travel anymore. So uh, he, he's great. He's a chef. And I, and I only have the one son. And, uh, and uh, he's in his mid-50s now. I had him in my... Huh? Brian. And, and he, he lives in Los Angeles, and he's been, he's been there for quite a while. And um, his mother is my first wife.
Well, I will say that um, this uh, box that I'm working on is um, <laughs> really interesting. And it has um, tons of stuff that, um, you know, was never released. Because as a songwriter, I would always have some kind of studio in whatever house I lived in. And I would make um, records there. And when synthesizers came out and drum machines, then I didn't need anybody else. So I could I could be the whole band on these records. And uh, whenever I wrote a song, I would record it. And, uh, and so I have a, a great deal of stuff that's never been released. And uh, I talked to this record company called uh, Omnivore. And they put out sort of things like that. And, uh, and they've been uh, very nice. Uh, we've been involved in this for about two years so far. And we're now getting to the stage where we're going to, uh, I'm going to, I've spent the last six months going through uh, everything that's in the house. And now I have to uh, pick what's going to be on the box set. And then I have to uh, take each track and, and make it sound, you know, as good as it possibly can sound. And then put this out. But we, we, there's no, uh, one of the good things is there's no date for release. So when it's ready, it'll come out. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be amazing. I mean, I already am sort of half done. It's going to be amazing. It'll definitely be, you know, the best thing I ever put out. And, uh, and, and there'll be, you know, something for everybody on it. And there's stuff from all parts of my life on it. And, and what amazed me the most in putting it together was how many songs I wrote. And because, and when I started having uh, studios in the house, I was able to record them all. And so I have, you know, recordings of 
it's going to be great to uh, divest myself of them at this point in my life. And uh, if it doesn't sell, uh, I don't care because I'll be dead. So, but, but I mean, for people that are fans of mine, it'll be like a gold mine. Because there's just, there's so much stuff on it. And once I had a studio in the house, I, I could record whenever I felt like it and do whatever I felt like doing. And so, you know, I never had that when I was with a record company. So it's a, uh, it's a, a great advantage. So I, I really understand, um, uh, every day and night working on it now. And I always sleep like four hours a night. No, I understand. But I never, I never slept much. I'm an insomniac. And, uh, and over the years, you know, I met a few others, and, uh, and so we talk on the phone. Or, uh, like now, I'm working all night. So, I'm glad that I have something to work on, and uh, and I really hope that I can finish it. But I'm very close. I'll tell you, it'll be it'll be amazing. It's just amazing stuff in there. And it goes all the way back to the beginning of my career. And, and to the end of it as well. So it's a, a, a great thing. I'm glad that um, somebody saw fit to uh, bankroll it, and uh, I'm very glad about that because I always wanted to do this, and uh, I'm almost done.
did you did you get what you needed? Oh good. Oh good. Okay, well you were you were very patient too. Okay, well thanks very much and um when when you have a a, a copy, whatever form it's in, uh let me hear it. Okay. See ya. Bye-bye. Well, folks, do we have it? Mr. Al Cooper. Again, I apologize for the audio at the end there. I don't know what happened, how it happened, but yeah, I guess it is what it is, right? It happens, I guess. Mistakes happen. Uh, live and learn, as they say. Well, I'm currently in the process of researching 1967. It's still, it's coming together pretty good, but it's still kind of, it's still got ways to go a little bit. So, bear with me. It'll be up. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Mark and Neskino podcast interview with Mr. Al Cooper. And I hope you tune in next time. Thank you again. Goodbye.